And Father, I pray once again that the words that we share will not simply hang in the air, but they'll go to our hearts. And that out of this weekend and out of classes like this, there'll be people that decide that, listen, I'm not going to sit on the sidelines. I'm going to jump in. I'm going to risk. I'm going to do whatever it is you want me to do to make a difference. And Father, I pray that you'll love You'll bless what we're doing. Be with Clint and I as we uh, as we talk, uh, Father, because uh, your truth matters and help us to convey that in a way that allows you to work. Father, keep us out of the way, and Father, keep your word in focus. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our topic this time is learning to deal with problems specifically from insiders. And the bottom line is, you know, uh, it doesn't matter whether you start a church or you're having a church plant, you're going to have problems. And Clint's going to kick us off here as we begin to talk about some of that. All right, my name is Clint, and I'm a church planter uh, here with the Crossings. Uh, I've been in church minist- uh, ministry for about 16 years. I've all held all sorts of different positions, and uh, I'm really excited about church planting. Uh, I love what what God, just how God's moving and God uh, is in it, and you just see see firsthand you're in the trenches and doing things. And because of this love of church planting and this love of being in ministry, just seeing God's will done in the kingdom of the earth, uh, I got some statistics to lay out for you guys. So right now, these are the church planting statistics as of 2022. Uh, four out of five church plants um, fail. That's 80% of church plants. Uh, All major church plant statistics point to those numbers uh, being as accurate. Uh, Only 20% uh, of of those successful ones, of 20%, 86% credit their success to asking for help, attending seminars, and being mentored by another successful church plant. And so if you want to be successful in church planting, uh, I really think plugging into things like that, like this, is is really, really important. Lifeway Church uh, research said 79% of ministers think that their church is on the right path to growth. 79% thought that. But in actuality, what we found is that 36% of those churches actually showed growth. There's a problem. There's a problem with uh, with that. so these numbers, uh, these numbers that we say to start a church, that whether you start a church or whether you are in a church, you're going to encounter problems. Church plants die because of problems that aren't dealt with properly. And so that's what we're going to talk about today is how to deal with those problems properly. And the one first thing that you got to do is there are two types of internal problems of all churches that are dealt with. Type one is the sin, the sins of its minor, uh, the sins of its members. Let me get that out right. The sins of its members. First uh, John chapter three uh, verse four says this: Everyone who sins breaks God's law, because sin is the same thing as breaking God's law. As long as there are humans in the church, there's going to be sin. But how to respond to it is a vital thing. Proper response is vital because the wrong decision can actually lead to worst repercussions. So it's really important that we know that the right decision that can give life. What we've seen is that in in churches with 36% of churches that are successful confront sin on a regular basis. The 68% of of those uh, do not not handle sin. 36% are the ones that deal with sin. And last time I checked, sin is 100% a problem all across the board, right? We all deal with sin, right? And because we all deal with sin, knowing how to deal with it is super problem. So sin of its members is a huge part of it. Yeah, and I thought it interesting when Clint was showing me his statistics that 
that like 80% of the ministers think that they're growing, but only 36% you know, or whatever it was are actually having any growth. And then he gives us statistics of how many churches are actually dealing with sin. It's about 36%, is that what you said, to where you're going, okay, is that the same churches or not? And I would guess that it probably is. But it's not just the sins uh, uh, that, that can slow a church down. If you think about the book of Hebrews, the Bible says that we challenge us as, as individuals to throw off any, uh, anything that hinders and the sin that entangles us. And so it gives us two things. So you've got to get rid of the sin. Well, that's kind of a, well, yeah, you know, no doubt. And, and it's weird because in my work with people who are wanting to be influential in the kingdom, uh, it's generally not a hard thing to get them to throw off sin, things that are obviously sinful. Uh, it's pretty easy to do. But it's another thing when you're trying to get them to throw off something that you can't clearly identify as sin, but you know it's hindering them. And again, in my experience, those who are successful are small group leaders, are people that are planning churches, are, are people that are really having influence. There is a real correlation between somebody who is willing to do both. Those that are willing to do both say, hey, I'm going to get rid of sin, and I'm going to get rid of anything that hinders. They do tons better as, as, as leaders and as people who are helping uh, others find and form Christ in their lives. I don't think that's just true with individuals. The church is just a collection of individuals, so there's a lot of similarities. So not only was it, does a church have to deal with the sins of its members, it needs to deal with the struggles of its members. And the struggles will be things that go on that there may not, you may not be able to even to point to a thing and say, that's sinful. You might go, well, maybe we should have been wiser, but it's hard to say that that's necessarily sinful. And again, there, there's a passage of scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 23. And this is, in, the, uh, this is in, in a modern translation. But Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and saying, you know, you shouldn't do that. That's not a good idea. And they're going, no, under the grace of God, we're permitted. Now, Paul is saying, you probably ought not do that. And he's not directly in every instance said, oh, that's sinful, that's bad. But if the Apostle Paul, the greatest church planner in the history of the world, is going, yeah, not a good deal, not a good job, I'm thinking maybe I ought to go, okay, I won't argue with you. Right. But in this translation, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 10-23, the Bible says this. He says, you say, under grace there are no rules and we're free to do anything we please. And by the way, that was a slogan. It's in quotes. It's not in, your, in the original language in quotes. It's not in, in many translations and not quote. But if you read scholars, when they're saying, hey, we're under grace, so we're free, it had become a slogan like it. It's not something that Paul is, is saying to teach. It's something he is repeating to repudiate. So we're under, under grace. There's no rules. And we're free to do anything we please. Not exactly. Because not everything promotes growth in others. Your slogan, we're allowed to do anything we choose, may be true. But not everything causes a spiritual advancement of others. So it's like Paul's going, yeah, you may be able to do what God you want to do, and maybe God's grace will cover you, but you're going to kill the growth of your church and your spiritual growth. And so it comes down to this reality. There are some things that we have to deal with outside of just sin. And as long as there are humans in the church, there will be sin. As long as there are humans in the church, there will be struggles in the church. And again, our response is vital because the proper response will bring life and growth and an improper response even to the struggles that we're going through. And guys, I'm telling you, you're going to find yourself. You, it, ben comes to our, to our staff meetings, our, our, our core meetings of our leadership over here uh, uh, 
pretty frequently to our meetings. And anybody who thinks that we just get together, you know, and we hold hands and sing Kumbaya and everything is just real, you know, we're united and there's, man, sometimes those things get intense. Rarely does the intensity come over a matter of clear sin or something that the Bible would reveal is clearly wrong. You know what we get in our disagreements about? We get in disagreements about what we think and what our opinions are about how something ought to be done. And so what we do is, and it, it really is, it's just ugly sometimes, we fight it out because that person believes that they know what's best, this person believes what they know is best, we know both of them have good hearts, so it, we just discuss until we come in and somebody goes, you know, I think you're right, I'm wrong, I'll, let's do that. And when we leave that room, we leave 100% united. I mean, no question. And, if, and again, if you were to walk into some of those meetings and not know us, you would go, oh, my. We added some people to our core group a couple of years ago, Brian and Leah. And Brian was like, Robert, after one of those core meetings, my eyes were like wide open all night. And I'm going, what in the world just happened? But he goes, it just taught me, man, you guys are passionate. You're not just yes men, but this matters. But what matters most is you put it behind you and you go do what you should. That's a good thing to learn when you're getting a core group. And so if you deal with those things well, it'll promote growth. If you deal with the things poorly, it will, it will, it will destroy your growth. And so on a church plant, again, you'll never be able to have a planter where there's no sin and there's no struggles. If you're looking for church people to plant your church that are sinless and don't have any struggles, you don't got a chance. All those people have been planted in heaven, okay? They're, 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 that's the only place where there's no struggle. You're going to be planted with dead guys. That didn't work out well, all right? So what we want to do is, again, we want to kind of look in, in as we said, as we look, spend a lot of time in the Gospels because the Gospels are the foundation of the book of Acts. The Gospels are the launching pad for the book of Acts. We want to spend more time in the book of Acts with this baby church, and we do some case studies of how that first century church dealt with their sin, with, with sin and their members and how they dealt with struggles. Because again, while, while the culture has one way of dealing with sin, while those of us different temperaments, you know, you, you, you know what I mean, different temperaments, you have a different way of dealing with things. Like, you know, I used to be the angry guy in all our meetings. You know what I mean? And, and you know, and over years I've kind of grown, okay, to where uh, I've went from being angry and out of control to being angry and in control. <laughs> But, I, you know, I was, I was the first one, you know, years ago to call the executioner. They did that just, just off with their heads, you know, and that would be it. And now I'm like saying, no, no, not off with their heads. Just lop a few fingers and we'll, they'll be fine. You know, I'm kind of, I, I, but some of you, my son, Carrie, he can be so, you know, he's like at me when I was younger. I'm going, hold it, hold it, hold it. No, there, there is, there's a, maybe there's a better alternative. Personality, though, shouldn't be, or temperament shouldn't decide how you deal with sin. The scripture should determine how you deal with sin. And again, you have this, that you, you can have in your church plant, you can have lots of cool models, you can have lots of pure examples, but you will have no cooler, no purer model than the ones that are revealed in scripture. Whenever there's something that that church does that God applauds, you know if you do it, you're gonna be applauded. If there's something that that church does that is condemned, you will know that you would be condemned. But ultimately, you know that the one who was designed to give, the one who designed the church in a fashion that was designed to bring the most life possible, condemns the things that bring life, or, or commends the things that bring life, and condemns the things that would take life. 
And you got to trust him on that, that he knows. So go on and jump in there. So the, uh, one thing to realize in, in, when you're dealing with sin, you got to deal with sin decisively, decisively. We're going to take a case study real quick in Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 5, uh, verse 1 through 11. And just a little setup on this verse right here. If you don't know anything about Ananias and Sapphira, know this. Uh, they were part of the church. They were a husband and wife. Uh, but right before they came up to the church, uh, there was a guy named Joseph. Joseph uh, was one of the apostles. His nickname was Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, which is one of the coolest nicknames I could ever imagine. Uh, he was from the tribe of Levi, and he came from the island of Cyprus. Joseph sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles to the, first, uh, to the church, and he laid it at their feet. And that's really, I mean, people looked at that and they're like, oh, Joseph is so cool. He got to do something really neat. He got a really cool nickname. Uh, he got some really cool, uh, you know, some image. He, he, he looked at it and they're like, oh, he got this really neat thing, the status amongst all these people. And because of that, pe other people looked at that with jealousy and impure motives. And they looked at that and going, how can I take advantage of this? Case in point, Ananias and Sapphira. So this is, we're going to start in Acts uh, 5.1. But there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property. He brought the property to the money to the apostles, claiming that it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourselves. The property was yours to sell, or not to sell, as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but you were lying to God. And as soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard this was terrified. I, oh, anytime you hear that, that, and died, how many people have seen the movie The Croods? Remember that movie where, where he says, like, I love that, where he says something, where he says a little story and he ends it with, and they died. And the reason why he does that is because he wants to instill fear and terror into this. And that's exactly what this did. Uh, it, inc it incited terror, and people were terrified when they heard what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. I like Greek. I'm a Greek guy. I really like to dive into words because I'm a real nerd in that, that way. I like to dive into words and meetings. And the word for the Greek terrified is phobos. We get the word phobias from it. I don't know if you know this about phobias, but it doesn't, it's not something that you greet with, hey, how's it going? A welcome hug, have fun for dinner. No, phobias are, are something that when you see, you're terrified. You ever seen anyone with a, with a fear of spiders? You ever seen that? Yeah, I'm not looking at anyone about fear of mouses, though, you know, but like, or mises, I don't know what they are for. Anyway, uh, but fear of spiders or anything, when you see the, the fear of spiders, does that person react and be like, oh, such a cute little spider? You're such a cute. How do they react when they see it? Ah, they run away. They're terrified. That's what Phobos is. And when people heard what happened to Ananias and Sapphira in, the, in Acts, they looked at that and they were like, whoa. Fear, Phobos, came across everyone. It was scary. In this story, you would think that God um, might choose to leave out of the scriptures, right? If you're trying to build your kingdom, you're trying to build this wonderful church, you're trying to do it, this is not a story that you'd probably put right at the beginning of the book, right? I mean, you know, like, it's, not a, it's not something you would lead off with. It's like, hey, uh, our God's wonderful. Yeah, have you heard of Ananias and Sapphira? What happened to him? It was not something you'd, you'd lead off with, but God does put it in here. 
God chooses, chooses to put it right front and center. And I can see the headlines on a Facebook notice right now. Local church executes member over insufficient tithes. <laughs> right? That would go over real well. You know? Yet God did not, leave, uh, uh, did not leave it out. And we'll discuss the reasons why in just a bit. With that being said, the result of God's decisions to not leave it out in action is really evident. You go to 5.11, it says this. Great fear gripped the entire church. And everyone else who heard what had happened, and all the believers were meeting regularly at the temple in the area known as Solomon Colonnade. In verse 13, but no one else dared to join them. Even though all the people had the highest regard for them, yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord, crowds of both men and women. The church grew and grew and grew because of that fear. It was pretty amazing. Fear has that way of doing things to, to us like that. When we look at it and it starts, you know, we, get, we buy into that action, we, we look at it and we're like, oh man, there's something greater there, there's something bigger there. And I think why they were afraid is because they saw that God was real. It was a real God they were dealing with. And I think when you're dealing with sin, we've got to realize that he's saying these things, and we've got to uh, handle it decisively because there's a real God, and it matters how we deal with the sin. And if I just flippantly deal with it, God's not happy about that because he, he didn't flippantly deal with Ananias and Sapphira. He was direct. And I think a lot of the reasons why we don't have the effect that we have on the church today is because of how we deal with sin in people today. We don't, we don't confront it. We don't deal with it decisively. We look past it because we want them there. Or we don't want to say, we want to say feelings. We don't, we don't want to have those hard conversations. Four things happen in conjecture with, with, uh, with decisive action like this. We've got to realize the four things. One, the church responded with a newfound fear of the Lord. That's not a bad thing. That's a really, really good thing. Two, the church maintained a level of respect. We'll talk more about this a little bit later. And number three, the disciples seemed to serve as a filter as far as those who came to the church. They came to the disciples going, how do we build our life? What do we do? And the disciples had great influence on, on and the church group because of it. And number four, more and more people believed and they were brought to the Lord. And that's what happens when you deal with sin decisively. But here's another case study that we have. Again, in the book of Acts, with Ananias and Sapphira, it was something that, was, that God dealt with. It's the first really major act of church discipline that you see. And when I say major, it's like, you know, smoking major, you know what I mean? And so they're, they're just drop dead. And you're going, well, how do, we, how do we reenact that? Well, you don't really reenact that. God is the one who would take care of that. But he does put it there for a reason. In the infancy of the church, you immediately see someone who is vying probably for a leadership position that's doing it out of motives that aren't pure. And the problem with leadership that is impure is that the leadership represents the head of the spring. And when the Bible says, guard your heart with all diligence for me, it's the wellspring of life. It's the picture of a well at the top of the hill that good water or bad water is coming out of. But you won't get good water out of a well that has a polluted well stream. And the same thing's true with your church plant or your small group, that there has to be a purity that's there. Not a perfection, but a purity. The second case study is Simon the Sorcerer. And we're in a different town and in a different church. Acts chapter 8, the Bible reveals these words in the Phillips translation. 
And again, to set the stage, one of the men that was picked out of the Jerusalem church when they encountered a problem, a difficulty that we'll talk about later on about dealing with struggles, they picked some men that were full of Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. The first two mentioned are a guy named Stephen and a guy named Philip. Stephen, it would have been hard for him to go to Samaria because he was dead. They stoned him at the end of the chapter. But Philip, during the persecution, goes down, and God has gifted him with the gift of the Spirit. The apostles have laid their hands on him. He can do miracles, and incredible things are happening. And they encounter a guy named Simon, Simon the Sorcerer. And he was somebody in the city that had convinced everybody that he was the Holy One of God. He was God himself. He ends up listening to what Philip has to say and becomes a Christian. But he began to notice that Philip had the ability to lay his hands on other people and give them the ability to receive the gift. So Simon, this is picking up in verse 18, when Simon saw how the Spirit was given through the apostles laying their hands upon people, he offered them money with the words, give me this power too, so that if I were to put my hands on anyone else, he would receive the Holy Spirit. So Philip is there, great things are going on, he calls down the apostles, the apostles come down, the apostles lay their hands on people, they get the gifts, and, and they're going, and you know, Simon's a smart guy, so he goes, okay, he called these guys down before he was the one doing the miracles. He calls these guys down. Now they're laying their hands on other, these other people. They're passing on that ability. They're doing the miracles. Man, what could I do if I could pass the ability to heal people on to somebody? Do you know how much I could make? So he sees that and he says, you know, uh, give me this power too so that if I were to put my hands on anyone he would receive the Holy Spirit but Peter said to him to hell with you and your money how dare you think you could buy the gift of God you have no share or place in this ministry for your heart is not honest before God all you can do now is repent of this wickedness of yours and pray earnestly to God that the evil intention of your heart may be forgiven. For I see inside you, and I see a man bitter with jealousy and bound by his own sin. Now the similarity that you have between what happened with Ananias and Sapphira and what happens with Simon the Sorcerer is that both of them crave influence and praise. Now, in the starting of a church, what you need to know, you will attract people who for impure motives want influence and they want the praise that's going to come with it. And in both cases, they're called out. In both cases, it seems that a desire brought deception in their hearts and it brought a desire for ungodly gain. And it's called hypocrisy. And God's not having that. You go, man, why, why, did, why did he strike them dead? Because he knew, Jesus knew the destructive nature of hypocrisy. Why, does, why, why in Samaria does Philip so boldly and brashly, the reason I use the Philip's translation, by the way, which is an old translation that says, to hell with you and your money, that's pretty decisive. I mean, that's, that's pretty, you're going, man, if you were there, you might go, you know, just settle down, Cain. You're just a little bit over the top here. Think this out. Let's get a path and a plan. You know, that's what. But here's the thing. When you read what the word says, it is a, no matter what translation you read it in, it is a confrontation. And it's a confrontation because sin within the leadership 
is absolutely destructive because the leadership, remember last, last class we said it's not a matter of if they will imitate you, it's a matter of what they will imitate. I had a guy get on to me one time because he was talking, he said, well, you, I've heard you've been told, you've told people to imitate you. I said, well, number one, I never have. Number two, it doesn't matter whether I have or not because they're going to. I said, I, the people in your church, you can give me 20, 20 situations and I can tell you how they're going to respond because I know how you're going to respond. My dad and mom have changed radically since you've been there in the way they respond to situations. And I know where they learned it from and so do you. So it's not a matter of if we're going to imitate. The Bible concedes that humans will imitate. It's a matter of what will we provide for them to imitate. So he steps in, he says, listen, you've you, you got to make sure that with sin, you, you can't allow hypocrisy to exist in your church. There's a passage of scripture, and I read this frequently to the crossings. Uh, it's Matthew 23. It's 13 through 15. Where Jesus is talking, it's in the, in, the, in the seven old passage where he's confronting the religious leaders. And he says, what sorrow awaits you, you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves and you don't allow those others who enter who are trying. Hypocrites, you cross land and sea to make one convert and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell as you are. Now, if you want to know why you've got to deal with, with, with blatant sin decisively is because blatant sin that's not dealt with decisively creates a hypocrite. It allows the behavior to go on. And Jesus, as he is confronting hypocrisy, says, here's three things you need to know that hypocrisy does if it's not dealt with. Number one, it causes the hypocrite to be lost, right? He says, you're not entering the kingdom. If you're not in the kingdom, you're not saved. You're not entering the kingdom. So first of all, the hypocrite ends up being lost. The second clear thing is, he says, nor will you allow those to enter who are trying. So it keeps the hypocrite from being saved. It blocks the door to the seekers who want to be saved. It prevents them. It gives a model that is not a bridge, but a roadblock. And so he said, man, deal with hypocrisy. And in our culture, you realize over the last 50 years, there's been numerous surveys about why people don't like the church. And almost every survey, somewhere in the top five, you know why they say, I don't want to go to church anymore? Because of the hypocrites. My mom used to say, oh, that's just an excuse. Jesus said it's a reality. Now, not to contradict my mom, okay, but obviously <laughs> some of it is an excuse. But some of it's the truth. People who are authentically seeking to find the kingdom are blocked by those who are inauthentic within the kingdom. So you got to deal with it. And the third reason is, is that it's contagious. You become a church of hypocrites. What does he say? You travel land over sea to win a single convert. They're evangelistic. But once you make one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. So you got to deal with that stuff decisively. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Bible says this, again, a modern speech translation. He says, don't you understand that even a small compromise with sin permeates the entire fellowship? Just a little leaven permeates a batch of dough. Remove every trace of your leaven of compromise and sin so that you might be pure again. He goes, listen, sin that's not dealt with is like leaven in a piece of dough. You put just a little leaven in there, even if you don't mix it in, do you realize? Now, if you mix it in, it makes it rise evenly and faster 
but leaven that's not mixed in even, just left set in a warm, dark place, and it will permeate the whole batch of dough. He says that's what sin is. So we got to make sure that as we, as we talk about in our church plants and when we're starting new things, that we don't have this idea that somehow grace is a license to sin. There's nothing gracious about allowing somebody to be involved in activity that will cause them to be lost, cause seekers to be lost, and will corrupt the church and make it into a place where it's children of the devil are living out pretending to be children of God. And so let me make sure that, you know, again, encourage you just to make sure that you go, okay, man, I'm not going to let those happen. And again, we're given that right. Those on the outside and many shallow insiders will ask or state, they'll say things like, who gave you the right to judge? Well, and my answer to that is God did. You, my people I know have heard this. 50 years ago, the most famous verse in the Bible was John 3, 16. And if you said, they wouldn't be able to tell you where it is, but you say, what's the only Bible verse you know? And they would say, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Now, if you ask people, what verse do you know? They might even know, not know the verse, but they'd say, judge not, lest you be judged. That's the, that's the number one verse. It's the one that's pulled out, literally out of the scriptures, out of context. But what we need to recognize is that Paul says, listen, you are supposed to judge those within your church. In 1 Corinthians 5, 12, the Bible says this. Paul's writing to that church, what right do I have to pronounce judgment on believers, on unbelievers? That's God's responsibility. He goes, that's not my job. It's not about me cleaning up the world. That's God's job. But those who are inside of the church family are our responsibility to discern and judge. So it's your duty. And notice that he not only gave the right to judge, he gave the responsibility to judge. The literal version says, but God will judge the, you know, the ones outside and you shall put out from, your, from yourselves the evil one. Message paraphrase says, God decides on the outsiders, but we need to decide when our brothers and sisters are out of line and if necessary, clean house. Now that is not a popular message in our culture. It's not a popular message within church plants. But I'm telling you, if you have a church that does not deal with sin decisively, you're going to have a church that will be destroyed by sin. And the second thing that we have to do, we have to deal with sin decisively. We said that that's number one. Number two is we have to deal with struggle discerningly. And you're going to find this in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Uh, verse 1 through 7. I'll read it real quick. It says, things were going well. The number of disciples was growing, but a problem arose. The Greek-speaking believers became frustrated with the Hebrew-speaking believers. The Greeks complained that the Greek-speaking widows were being discriminated against on a daily distribution of food. The twelve convened the entire community of disciples. We could solve this problem ourselves, but that wouldn't be right. We need to focus on proclaiming God's message, not on distributing food. So find seven respected men from the community of faith. These men should be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We can maintain our focus on praying and serving, not on meals, but the message. The whole community, Greek-speaking and Hebrew-speaking, was pleased with this plan. So they chose seven men. Stephen, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Permanus, and Nicholas, a Greek-speaking convert from Antioch. These men were presented to the apostles, who then prayed for them, commissioned them by laying their hands on them. This is Acts chapter 6, 
verses 1 through 6. Okay, so you got to deal with sin decisively in your group, guys. If you're going to, if you're going to, in church, when, when, whenever a church plant starts, if you don't deal with it, it will become the pattern. But you also have to deal with their struggles, like Clint saying, but you have to discern, how, how, how do I deal with this struggle? Because this is a mess. The church at this point of Acts is, had been large, it had been growing, but when this problem comes up, the growth slows or even stops. We don't know. It's, by implication, it slows down in a way that's, that would be obvious. And so you're going to have times where there are going to come situations up where you're going to have a problem. What, how, how, what, if, what if a struggle comes up? What if a problem comes up that's not a matter of sin, but we're just, we're not meeting, we're, we're not meeting the needs of the church, that we're not doing this? And in just these verses, I don't know how much time we have, but let me give you five things that these guys did that you can do to help you deal with struggles in a discerning way. Number one, they collected the data. Okay, what's the problem? I'm sorry, Pardon me? Data? Information. That's okay. I'm not used to using a handheld mic, so I'm probably pulling it away. Sorry. I, but uh, my son, every time I'm up on the stage with it, he's like, hold it up. Okay. All right. But, uh, <laughs> but they, 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 and here's the thing. When they're collecting the data, it's coming from people that are kind of grumbling and complaining. And if you're not careful, there's two things that you will do. You will spend, because it's a, it seems to be grumbling, you will pay no attention to them. Or you'll give them so much attention that it's dominating and they'll just discourage you. But they get together and they kind of find out, going, what's the problem? Well, we think, and, I, and I'm re some of this is Robert's revised version, okay? We think that you guys don't really care about our widows because they're not being taken care of. You care about the Jewish ladies, but you don't care about the Jewish widows, but you don't care about the widows that are outside of your region. It's really a culture kind of st struggle that's going on. And the problem is, you see, what had happened is, when the church came into being in Acts 2, it came during the, the celebration of Pentecost, and it followed after that had the Passover, the biggest Jerusalem swelled, you know, like, like Daytona Beach on, on college spring break, you know what I mean? It's just got so many people more there than before. A bunch of them became Christians. Some of them were Christians who lived in Jerusalem, or Jews who had lived in Jerusalem. Some were, became Christians who lived outside of Jerusalem. The Jewish church had a system set up to take care of Jewish widows. So in Jerusalem, there was already something was set up to take care of Jewish widows. It was what the Jewish people did. So whenever the Jewish Christians got together, I'm assuming that some of the guys said, hey, you know, some of the miss... Miss B became a Christian over here and her family's not going to take care of her. We need to make sure we're checking to see how many widows became Christians because they're not going to have anything. And so they took care of them. They knew who they were. They knew nobody from the outside. It was a question, it was, it was a matter of ignorance more than it was a problem of any kind of intent to, to be prejudiced or to be in any way to be biased. So they get together and go, so, oh, here's the problem. It's, and so they collect the data. Second thing they do is they concede there's a problem. Now, collecting the data, data is just a smart thing to do. To concede there's a problem takes humility. You know, get the data together. Is, that, is this going on? Yeah, it is. Oh, man, we're sorry. We need to address that better. And I'm letting you know when it comes to struggles within your church and struggles, sometimes the biggest way that you can deal with it, sometimes you will end the struggle when you humbly admit that there is a problem that we missed. 
You don't have to admit that you meant to miss it because you probably didn't. You don't have to admit that you didn't care for the people that, that were affected by it because that isn't the truth either. But you go, man, oh, we missed it. And to say, man, we missed it, we're sorry, and we, we should have done better goes a long way because you now have the conditions that you're beginning to simmer down this dispute. So they have the humility, they have the, the collection of the data, that's, the, that, that's intelligence. They conceded the problem, that's humility. They corrected the problem. That took wisdom. He said, man, let's get a bunch of guys that are full of the Holy Spirit. We don't know everybody in this church, obviously. If we knew everybody in the church, we wouldn't let this happen, these widows. You guys pick us some good men out. And by the way, if you study the ethnicity of the people that they pick, guess what ethnicity do you think they pick? Those from Jerusalem or those from outside of Jerusalem? They pick those outside. Smart. Because those people knew those people. We got some good guys from the outside. And we're going to use them because these are ladies that they may know. And this will let you know that we're, this isn't anything about us trying to keep our thumb on you and to keep a certain role of leadership. We want everybody to do that. And so they correct the problem. And with that, they are, they are able to, to, to let the whole church that they know. Now understand through all of this, they're being servants. It's not a matter of somebody's going to serve tables and, and we're going to be superior. There are servants who are going to minister the word to people, and there are servants who are going to minister food to people, but they really do, in their humility and their approach, they keep an equality of what's going on. That's going on. So they identify, uh, they, they collect the data, they can see the problem, they correct the problem, and then they carried out their purpose in the way that they handled it. This is a legitimate problem. The greatest problem it is, is, is that it is preventing us from doing what we need to do. And so they said, listen, it's not proper for us to wait tables. Why? You're, you're, you're above waiting tables. If you're on a church plan, on a new church, you better get used to doing everything from waiting tables to washing toilets. I'm, dude, I, I'm not kidding you. Anybody on our church plan, anybody when we start a greater altar, they will tell you that there is nobody who was down on their knees praying deeply with reverence. No, that's nobody. There was nobody. I was probably down on my knees cleaning more than I was down on my knees praying. It's just, it's what, it's what sometimes you have to do. So it's not a matter of superiority. And sometimes you will have to do that and don't get all uppity. And, you know, well, it's not right for me to be, you know, cleaning the toilets when I could be telling the truth. Sometimes if you're not cleaning the toilet, nobody's going to show up to tell it so you can tell them the truth, all right? But generally speaking, okay, generally, bless it, that's for real, okay? Generally speaking, if you are the one that's leading the church plant, you need to make sure that if you're the one that's gifted with communicating, if you know the word better, if you know what needs to happen better, you need to make sure you're taking care of what's going on. And you are, that you are enabling yourself to fulfill the purpose. And again, the reason that you want to be the preacher is not for your praise. And the reason you're rejecting serving tables is not because of your pride. You choose based upon what's going to fulfill the purpose of God. It's not about praising when you're good. It's not about pride in what you won't do. It's about purpose that needs to be accomplished by whatever you choose to get. And that's a really good thing, you know, and since we're talking about cleaning toilets, P and P went together really well there, didn't they? You know, that's all right. You can, you can put a little toilet bowl illustration there. 
But notice what happens afterwards. Here's the next verse, Acts 6, 7. This is right after the, the, they presented the men to the apostles and they begin the ministry. Verse 7, the message of God continued to spread and the number of disciples continued to increase significantly there in Jerusalem. Even priests in large numbers became obedient to the faith. Now listen, again, what happened? The word spread and people that were difficult to reach were reached who the priest, who would the priest have been ministering to? The Jewish people. Even the Jewish people from outside of the city. So they see a church that has a message of love and concern, and they see a church carrying out that. And so it's being carried out by those who can do that, but the ones who needed to carry out the word did that. And again, let me reiterate this, okay? If you're going to lead a church, you need to know as a leader, you are a servant. When he says it's not right for us to give up, and the King James says the ministry of the word, so that we can wait on tables. Do you realize the word wait is the same word, minister? It's the word serve. It's not a choice of whether you get a serve in a church plan. And we talk about when you're in a church plan, there is no choice. You're going to serve or you're going to die. The church is going to die. You are a servant. Whether you're a servant that's speaking the word or whether you're a servant that is serving tables. And it's all important. So you've got to learn to deal with those things. So again, with the struggles, collect the data, concede when there's a problem, correct the problem, and keep carrying out your purpose. And amazing things will happen. With sin, it's more difficult to deal with, but it sometimes it's clearer. But you need to make sure whenever he tells the Corinthians to say, get rid of that old yeast so that it might be a new batch. It's sad when a new batch, a new church, allows sin to exist. And the new batch becomes corrupted. And it's the leader's role. It is the church's role. Not only the, the right, it's the responsibility for, you, for, for the church leadership to deal with it. So be aware, be kind, and be faithful. All right? We're going to pray, and then if there's any questions, we'll answer those. What time are we supposed to be finished? Uh, about 10 In minutes. five minutes, right? Yeah. Okay, so we got 10 minutes. We're supposed yeah. to be finished in five minutes. We're bold and rebellious. We'll take 10, all right? Boom. Okay. Let's pray. Father, thank you for everybody that's here. God, and I pray that Clint and I communicated clearly. Uh, it's strange because I've, I've been with Ben Mullins, the guy that we did the first class with. I don't know if Ben and I had ever taught together. He's back there. I don't think we've known each other now for almost 20 years. Not quite 20 years, 15 years, and, and never taught together, although we're together every week. Uh, with Clint, I've known him for a, about that long, and we've never taught together. And so, Father, sometimes it, it's cool to have that relationship, but it can make communicating a little bit more difficult. So, Father, I pray that our words communicate. I pray that you'll unscramble it in the, in the lives of the people that are speaking, uh, that are listening, and that if we uh, didn't make sense, Father, that somehow you'll help them make sense of that. Or they can just ask questions, and we can maybe clarify something we said. But, Father, we want to be a church that allows the word to go out powerfully in a way to where even our critics and those who would have opposed us become converts and become your followers. So Father, help us to know that we gotta deal with, with problems. Father, uh, next class, Jake and I'll be talking about dealing with persecution. And the difference in how we talk about dealing with problems and insiders is again, that's the insiders. Persecution ought to come from outsiders. Uh, will come from outsiders, but God help us to know that there is no church plan that won't encounter problems and persecution 
And Father, since that's a reality, how we respond to it becomes the most important thing. So Father, thank you for giving us a blueprint. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. All right. If we have questions here, we've got a mic so you can have that. And It's a mic. It won't bite you. Maybe. Okay. So earlier, um, in the, is this working? Okay. Earlier in the uh, message, you were saying something along the terms of like you've got a clean house if it's like corrupt. Um, could you elaborate on that? Because like, I guess like from how I took it, it's like, like exiling and all that. So like how, how, what do you mean when you say clean house, I guess? Well, and, and the message paraphrase was designed to bring clarity. But whenever Paul is saying the New American Standard, I believe, says remove that man from your fellowship. Okay. So, and if you go, then it's what it means. It says, listen, and, and in the context of, I don't know how many, you have a, an immorality that's going on in Corinth that Paul says is not even accepted among the pagans. And, and when you're at Corinth and you're doing something that the pagans wouldn't accept, you're going, dude, you're dirty. You know what I mean? This is kinky. And it was a mom, a, a, a boy was having sex with his mom or stepmom, one of the two. Uh, most translations will say stepmom, but if you look real carefully, that's what most people believe, but it's not implicit in the words. So there's something, either, but who cares, mom or stepmom? And the church somehow has prematurely embraced their definition, the definition of grace that, that we have in our culture. Grace is being kind and overlooking sins and not being judgmental at all. But basically what Paul says, it is never kind, it's never gracious to let one of your members do something that is going to lead them to eternal lostness. So he says, remove him from your fellowship so that his soul might be saved on that day. And so when you have church discipline, it comes to that, and we, have, we are a church that has practiced church discipline in the 35 years uh, uh, that I've, about 35 years now, and been involved in two church plants. Uh, both of those church plants, when we were in Illinois, it became the church that started with 30 for our particular domination, became one of the three largest churches in Illinois. Uh, in Missouri, we're probably not far off that, still a little bit off that now. I say that not to talk about anything, but we practice church discipline and we remove people and said, I'm sorry, you can't, you, we can't recognize you as a member because of that behavior. And they'd say, you know, and it's not about you, but the Bible says that this is going to cause you to be lost, and we can't allow you to think that's okay. Out of the 20 or 25 people I'm guessing that we had to withdraw fellowship with from, I'm betting 90% of them ended up turning back to Christ. Literally. And here's the reason why the fellowship mattered to them. We had a, for, for a lot of our churches, we're so cold and loving. Somebody says, well, if you do that, you're not going to be away from, you're not going to get anything from the church. And they'll go, well, hey, I'm getting a lot more from my stepmom than I am from the church anyway. Right? I'm just being honest. There is a lot more excitement and fun here than there and a lot more feeling of love. But so there's been that turning around that's there. But there are three things. When you practice church discipline, you need to know the motives for church discipline. The first thing is that you're doing it for the care of the brethren. The Bible says, Paul says, hand him over Satan so that his soul might be saved. That's the first thing. It's about the sinner, the person, the brother who's been overcome by sin. And again, Paul says so that his soul might be saved with the indication that he might not be if he doesn't turn. Now, some people say it doesn't matter how you behave. It can't affect your salvation. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. It is clearly not what the early church fathers taught, by the way. 
So the first motive is make sure that this, is, this person is something that you're doing this because you love him and you're trying to save him. Secondly, he says, you need to make sure that you're protecting the body of Christ. And it's in that context where he says, if you don't remove him, this is going to become an accepted, you know, practice. If he can sleep with his mom, every teenager is going to be thinking they can sleep with their girlfriend, right? Hey, what are you going to get on us? You got, you know, Billy Bob there with, you know, Charlene, and they're hooking up, you know, behind, behind you know, the, the communion table. And you're going, to, you're going to tell us we can't do that? For the record, I don't think that's their names. Yeah, I'm I don't know. Saying. Now that... That's their Hebrew, that, that's, their, that's their Greek nickname, okay? Um, the Hebrew, I don't know what it was. But anyway, Billy Bob and, and Charlene, that's, that's the, the, the Hebrew, the Greek nickname. But anyway, but literally he goes, a little leaven will leaven, will, will go through the whole dough. He says, so whatever you tolerate is what will be repeated. And then the third reason that you make sure that you deal with it is because you want to keep the reputation of the church clean. You're having something go on that doesn't even happen in the world. If the church becomes like the world, the world has no hope. Where do you go for help? Kane, you want to get a mic for him? Okay. You got one more question? Sorry. Give her the mic. Don't. Um, sorry, whoever needed it. <laughs> so I'm just like trying to understand. It's like, this is reminding me of a previous conversation I mentioned to Clint. So it kind of, I guess, in layman's terms, sounds like love the sinner but hate the sin. Like, you show them love and grace, and you do what you need to do to bring them back to Christ, but yes. obviously you don't condone what they're doing. Right. If I understand it in this right. Right, and that's completely fair. Love the sinner, hate the sin, but even over there, understand that what happens in the moment isn't what is important as what happens in eternity. Okay. They may be mad at me. You know, I, there's, there's a lady that we had to, she had, she came from a very difficult background. When she was young, her mom tried drowning her in the toilet. Her dad was sexually abusive, had a really rough time, had some kids. Well, if you come from that kind of background, and the husband that she married, the guy that she, she'd been married three times by the time she was 25 years old, very difficult background that lends itself to not good behavior. And she, could not, she couldn't hug her kids, literally. And I would say, listen, you better hug your kids, especially your girls, because somebody's going to hug them for you if you don't, and they won't care about what they'll use them. But she couldn't. She would acknowledge that her kids were out of control, but she couldn't allow anybody else to acknowledge that. So when the youth leaders would get you know, upset, would have to correct a kid, she would blow up. And so finally, with foul language and everything else you know, that's there. And so it ended up being to where one day at one of our events that we had, I heard her cursing out one of our youth leaders who had picked up her kid for six months, paid for their clothes, paid for their food. And, she's give, and so I stepped in. I said, hey, sissy, I need to talk to you. What? I said, this will be the last time this happens in our church. You're being divisive, you're being rude, and you've been talked to about force. So you have a choice to make. Either you can do this right, right, and she's like, are you going to throw me out of the church? I said, no, I won't throw you out. You're going to walk out of that door, but you won't be welcome in our fellowship until you make a change. And she walked out of the door. Walked away for about three or four months. Maybe longer than that, maybe six months, and I get a call. It's sissy, I need to talk to you. And so she came into the office, and, and by the way, whenever I was talking to her in those things, the conversation, she was in my face. Spit was hitting my face. Curse words were hitting my face. Literally, I'm going, okay, this is not fun. Uh, but she came and she said, I just, I, I want you to know, I'm really sorry for the way I treat people and treated you that day. And I said, well, I said, really appreciate that, sissy. And she goes, well, I'm sorry. I said, well, sissy, I forgive you. She goes, well, I, I got to ask you, can I come back? 
and I put my hands around her and I gave her a hug. I said, Sissy, man, it would be awesome. And she pushed me away. She goes, that's why I didn't come back earlier. She goes, I knew you was going to get that cheesy grin and you was going to give me a hug. And it was just going to make me feel worse about what it... And Sissy was a faithful member of Christ. As a matter of fact, Tim and Christian, the guy that I talked about, who was one of our leaders who had to drag his kids across town in order to wash his little brother's clothes and hook up the wiring and pay the bills to keep anything going on, Sissy is the one that reached Tim and Christian. Cool story. But it happened because of loving discipline. Mike? This is an interesting discussion uh, for a lot of reasons. Robert, thanks for bringing this out here. And I appreciate your guys' boldness to actually practice what the scripture teaches on this. Um, I wonder how you manage the tension, though, of the fact that, I mean, everybody, in, at least in every church I've been a part of, struggles with sin on a regular basis. So at what point do you say, hey, this is pervasive, this is, at what point do you notice that it's something that you need to enact church discipline about? Because, I mean, through the day, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably lose my patience and maybe think envious thoughts or do things like that and I, that I try to work on. But at what point do you disfellowship someone like that? Well, you talk about people struggling. You don't withdraw people who are struggling. You draw people who have, who have stopped struggling. Right. They just go, this doesn't matter. What's happening at Corinth, they know that it's wrong. The brother knows, that, but he, he thinks that somehow it's gracious. The, the Corinthian conspiracy is to make you think that to overlook something that that's destructive is an, act, is an act of your kindness. It's not kind. It's unkind. Literally, you look at what Paul says. is you got this smiley face on. You can wear your little peace patch, and I'm, you, know, you can put this whole, you know, whatever the symbol at Corinth was for acceptance. I don't think it was a rainbow back then, but whatever it might be, and that, there you're, you're fitting in. But it doesn't change the fact they're going to be lost, and you're supposed to be a representative of truth and salvation. So when they when when there is a refusal to fight and a refusal to struggle, I mean, and, and we are a church made full of strikers. Yeah. I mean, if you go down through the background of our church, and I could talk about some people that are in here uh, with their permission, but honestly, it's a, it's a bunch of people that come from broken backgrounds. Yeah. You know, I understand struggle on a level. You know, that's that's that's. I, in, in times life, my life, in my the way that being what God wants to be is always a struggle. Always tempted to do things that are wrong and do things that are wrong, but never surrender to the things that are wrong. It's never gonna. I'm, I'm never gonna let that. So that's if somebody is struggling. Like we'll have people that you know that we have some pretty high standards. You know, when you look at our worship team, one of the things that you can be certain of is that the people in the worship team are trying to be disciples in a way that we believe would honor God. They're not people that just can sing. We have people that can sing, we have people that can sing good that will never represent Jesus on that stage because they never represent him off of it consistently. But they're not perfect. You know, when, when, when you look at that group that's up there, I mean, you just go through them, you know, the, of the ones, if you look at the worship team that's on stage, you got, you know, guys that were abandoned by their didn't meet their father till you know Juan the black guy till a couple of years ago yeah. his mom was a drug addict who drugged them to every drug house in St. Louis and prostituted herself Juan's you know wife Summer she's on a worship team she grew up with her mom and dad going to prison for drug and dealing drugs she was abused as a kid and, and so we are familiar with struggle but there's a difference in struggling to do what's right and simply giving in to sin. Yeah. 
If somebody's fighting it, we're going to hold their hand, we're going to lift them up, we're going to be by the side of them. And one of the ways, this is an illustration a long time ago, the difference between somebody who's weak and someone who's rebellious, when somebody's rebellious, they will strike back at you when you try to help them. If they're just like weak, going on, imagine there's some lady, you know, with a cane at the side, an old man at the door, and a young man comes back and says, hey, hey, you know, he's trying to cross the light. If you help a weak person when they're trying to go across that light, they will lean on you, they will allow you to assist them. If you got somebody who's rebellious, they'll beat you with their cane. Yeah. Right. Get away from me, cane. No negative no. intended, okay? No pun. This is cane, by the way. Uh, but no, no, not too much of a pun intended anyway. Well, but but honestly, hard. that's one of the differences. If, when somebody, if somebody's wanting help, that's fine. But if they're hurting the people to continue, then you're going, man, you've crossed the line. Quick follow-up. What if, and I've, I have to admit, I'm thinking of a few specific people who... I'm trying to disciple now, and on some things, you know, they'll get real excited, and it'll be like, oh, thanks for helping me, whereas on other things, it's not necessarily I'm beating you with the cane, but it's like very, okay, I'll let you help me cross the sidewalk, but then wait a minute, hold on, no, and then there's this, it is a very obvious struggle, so sometimes it's, it's not so cut and dry, how do you deal with that? Well, when it's not cut and dry, I think you have patience, and what we're dealing, really dealing with is something that's very clear. Is this sin that they're participating in in something that would that, that's going to bring that will, will call, that can cause them to be lost that will spread within the church and it's going to give the church a bad name? They're just not gotcha. they're difficult and rebellious. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and and we I, I think I love the you know that we are we are open to struggles of any stri any stripe. You know, one of the things that the, you know Kane and, and and a couple of guys came over to our house the other night and was asking me. Mike Rosser and some were asking about the people there. I said, well, you know, there's a lot of diversity here. So I said, well, you know, right now within when the group that was there, we have three people, you know, there that are, you know, this three three people that struggle same sex attraction. Well, you look out and you can't tell any of who that might be. But what I'm telling you is, it's a struggle every day for them. Guys, it's a it's it's beyond what we can imagine. Sometimes it's a struggle. But here's the thing: they're struggling. Now, if they were going to say, we're going to embrace the lifestyle. And we're going to live that. We'd have to say, well, you can't do that and be a part of our church. We love you. We care for you. But we can't let you practice that. When they're saying, man, I just want to give in. One of the girls that I, that I work with in a group, she said, I want to cut myself every day. She said, I got a six-month badge from Celebrate Recovery for not cutting for six months. This is a, a lady in her, in her 30s. And she said, I don't even deserve to get that medal. I thought myself, she goes, but then I thought I did stay six months clean. And I was able to share with her, listen, you need to know there's a difference between temptation and sin. Jesus was tempted to sin, but he didn't. That's amazing victory. You were tempted to sin, but didn't. That's not something you ought to beat yourself up about. Man, that's glorious. Amen. That is amazing. God is looking at you and going, it is horrible. The way Satan can make somebody have a, feel like they're hopeless in the middle of a victory. People with, with depression, people with same-sex attraction, and addicts, deep addicts, will feel like they're a failure all the time because they're tempted. And somebody's got to go, no, you didn't give in and you were tempted. You're victorious. So we are a church that is very much about helping strugglers. But you don't help a struggler by enabling them. And we need to learn some things from our from our AA people out there who've been around for a while. We gotta quit. Sorry guys, we already went over, got to running and babbling. Thanks a lot.